This is Mercy Harper, writer for research services at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Ronan O'Malley, Director of Programs at the World Affairs Council of Greater Houston, to talk about what business leaders need to know about the invasion of Ukraine. Welcome to the podcast, Ronan. Thank you, Mercy, and it's uh, great to be with everyone from APQC. Last week, we had just hosted a program with four European ambassadors. Uh, we actually hosted that event on February 23rd, so literally only hours before the Russian invasion in the morning of the 24th. Uh, it was with four European ambassadors from a group called the V4, which is the Visegrad group. It's of Central European uh, nations. Uh, it was with the three ambassadors of the Czech Republic, Poland, Slovakia, uh, and then also the deputy ambassador of Hungary. And, um, you know, I think what amazed me, and you kind of asked me, you know, what were my takeaways from it? Um, typically, um, in my 10 years with the council now, we've hosted numerous ambassadors um, and, and numerous you know, heads of state over the years. Uh, it was very surprising and I think refreshing to hear uh, diplomats talk so frankly and so honestly uh, I have never, especially nations that have strong ties or connections with Russia, I've never heard four diplomats cohesively and unified uh, in their condemnation of Russia. And this is before the actual invasion. What's interesting is this is a group called the Visegrad Four um, that was founded 30 years ago and has really done a great job consolidating and integrating these four economies and getting a, a bigger footprint than the European Union. But in recent years, a lot of people have called them the Visegrad 2 plus 2 because you have two nations uh, of the Czech Republic and Slovakia in a lot of ways are kind of continuing to be you know, an open kind of democratic nations. Uh, but then you have the other two, Hungary and Poland, for different reasons, give a lot of people in the European concern about kind of backsliding with liberalism, uh, backsliding with political reform with regards to judicial independence and the freedom of speech. So it was really surprising that all four of these, especially the Hungarian uh, diplomat, were so ardently uh, speaking out against Russia, especially when Hungary, under you know, Prime Minister Viktor Orban, has probably had the closest, the deepest, and most concerning relationship with Putin over the many years of any European leader. So it was, uh, it was really kind of an eye-opening event. What was amazing was it, it shows you that I think the U.S., administration and our European allies have behind the scenes been laying the groundwork for what our response would be, especially in terms of sanctions. I think it amazed me and I suppose a lot of observers was the degree to which these sanctions were agreed to and also the extent to which these extensions impacted all aspects of uh, you know, economics and trade with, with Russia. You know, if Putin's overall goals um, for the last many years have been to weaken the European Union. You know, he was delighted with Brexit. He's happy to support far right or far left candidates, whether it's Marine Le Pen in France or, you know, left wing candidates in other parts of Europe. Anyway, he can, do, you know, sow dissension in, in the EU. He's happy. And most of all, anything to do to, you know, weaken and kind of de-emphasize the, the utility of, of NATO. That's his obsession. Uh, and obviously, this is completely backfired. Europe is probably the most unified it's been in many years. This is perhaps the most cohesive policy and the fastest any policy or set of policies agreed to by the European Union's in years. And then NATO, of course, is now in many ways stronger and more relevant than it's ever been. And, and lastly, I think just to emphasize 
there is massive, massive suffering, and obviously thousands of Ukrainian civil civilians have already been killed, and many more, sadly, are going to be killed. Um, but as the Czech ambassador said, you know, the other week for us, at the end of the day, this is a struggle against Putinism. This is not a struggle against the Russian people. Uh, the Russian people are going to suffer the widest uh, and deepest, you know, inflict impacts of these economic sanctions. Uh, the billionaires and the oligarchs will find their ways to move money. They might make less money, but they won't be as, as deeply impacted as Russian people. Absolutely. And, and you spoke about how surprising um, the swift and unified movement from governments has been. But um, I've also been surprised to see a similar uh, speed and bold actions on the part of many businesses. So from kind of a big picture perspective, what do you see as the role of business in this conflict? Yeah, I think this is probably the, the largest test of economic kind of punitive economic power influence in history. Uh, and as a part of that, um, American companies, co companies from China South Korea, from Europe, all of the kind of, you know, Western uh, kind of leaning countries are, are having major impacts that they themselves probably might not have anticipated even, even two weeks ago. Um, I also think it would be of note to, to think, you know, in terms of uh, the massive power of sanctions and disruptions to businesses, whether it be the United States or Europe or, or elsewhere, it's, it's not a new occurrence. If you think back to World War II, um, for five months before Pearl Harbor uh, in July 1941, uh, in response to Japanese continued aggression, continuing of taking territory in China and Southeast Asia, the killings of hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people in China. Uh, <clears throat> Japan really wanted access to, to oil, rubber, and tin, say Southeast Asia and parts of the Pacific. And in response to those aggressions and, and really just the killing of millions, uh, FDR put in place major, major sanctions on Japanese. Uh, basically, Japanese companies were not allowed to trade in the United States. American companies largely were not allowed to trade with uh, Japan as well. Uh, to give you an idea, at the time, I think about 75% of all the scrap metal that Japan was buying, which was a huge amount when you're building a massive war machine, 75% of that was coming from America and American mm. companies based here. So after those embargoes went in place, Japan lost about once our allies, the Dutch and the English followed suit, Japanese companies lost about 75% of their trade in a matter of months, and they lost uh, about access to roughly about 80% of their existing uh, sources of oil. Hmm. So I think this is a, a new uh, phase of that. It's not something new, but it's a new phase of that. And um, obviously the economic impacts are going to be hard to deduce and to follow but it's going to be potentially billions of dollars of losses for companies around the world. But I think what's really notable and commendable is that many of these companies are freely stepping forward and recognizing and accepting these losses um, in advance. They're not being forced into these positions. You know, you could be cynical and say they're, they're taking that position because they know that's coming, but either way, they're doing the right thing now. The short-term disruption of these sanctions are going to be difficult, but for a lot of companies uh, in the West, I think longer term, some of the bigger questions they're going to ask themselves are, are equally challenging. How risky is it to continue to do significant business in Russia, even if we get some sort of a ceasefire, you know, in the next few weeks or months? Mm. How hard is it consistently to do business in Russia, to do business in a nation and a market that's largely controlled by just one man? 
and one person who, who prides himself, if anything, on being unpredictable, which is complete opposite of what most companies want. They want consistency, they want predictability. Will investors and consumers be willing to kind of look beyond just the potential profit to be made from one of these companies? So I would say in terms of the American companies and European companies, what has happened so far is incredible. It's, 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 it's admirable. Um, you know, Shell, BP, Exxon, Boeing and Airbus, Ford and Mercedes, VW, Apple, Dell, Google, all have agreed to either stop or eventually phase out um, of Russia completely. And for those companies that, that do decide to stay in Russia, you know, obviously they're going to be huge, you know, ongoing obstacles and I'm probably going to stay there, you know, a good while longer. On the flip side, the, the one place where you see people, you know, jumping in is the Chinese uh, stock market. A lot of companies are jumping in to try and buy assets or more connections with Russia. So it'll be interesting to see what the things happen there. And, and for any, you know, Western companies that do stay, um, the two huge factors, the biggest factor really is um, doing business in Russia is going to be increasingly difficult. Uh, you know, the freezing of the, the West agreeing to freeze the assets of Russia's central bank means it's going to be very hard for Russian companies and, and people to access um, dollars or euros or pounds in which, which to pay you. And then when we look at SWIFT, um, you know, SWIFT, uh, you know, the mechanism for, for easy and fast payments between banks and secure payments between banks. Uh, it's not as big a factor, but if it adds, if it slows down a transaction, slows down a process, if it adds three, five percent uh, costs to a, a project that might already have tight margins, or a lot of companies are going to say, you know, it's just not worth it. So, and then to look at Russia, you know, its stock market has largely been closed now for, for the last two weeks. And when it does fully open, who knows what happens mm -hmm. there. Um, so kind of with regards to Russia, some of the ironic uh, picture of all of this is part of why Putin it was so revered and so admired in, uh, by a lot of the Russian people was he was seen as being an economic savior. Russia had the madness of the Wild West capitalism gone wrong, gone bad in the 1990s. Putin came to power, kind of organized things, settled things down. He also had the incredible luck, just blind luck, that he and both Chavez had in Venezuela of having 10 years of some of the highest and most continuously high rising prices of oil uh, in history, basically from, you know, the late 90s through the, you know, the early 2000s. So, you know, some of that was just blind luck, but it also helped him, uh, you know, enormously. You know, the, the irony of it is he was seen as an economic savior, but in the last 20 years, for all these people who say Putin's somebody who's a master playing 3D chess when the rest of the world is playing checkers, he's done very little to diversify his economy. His economy, the Russian economy, is still dependent about, uh, you know, 40 plus percent uh, of all of its federal budget comes from, you know, royalties and revenues from oil and gas sector. And oil and gas still equate for most years around 70% of all Russian uh, exports. Those are similar numbers to what the Russian, what I should say, the Soviets had during the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War. Uh, so, you know, Putin, for all his great genius, has done very little to diversify the economy and is still very exposed to just the oil and gas sector. Related to that, I'm just say, uh, you know, in the short term, it's going to be difficult for a lot of European uh, nations and even the U.S. to uh, 
kind of figure out their their energy you know mix and what they have going forward. It'll probably you know obviously increase uh, imports of LNG, a lot of that from the U.S. and from Canada. Um, it'll make them maybe reconsider coal powered plants they were considering about you know shutting down. Uh, might also make them reconsider nuclear plants nuclear plants that are going to phase out. But longer term, I think uh, it'll make the Europeans realize they want to be able to increase their own energy independence. And, you know, despite having the bad geography for solar, um, at least maybe pushing more in wind and other areas that they'll make more movements in, in those capacities. Absolutely. Um, totally agree. And a lot to think about. Um, let's kind of turn from, from punishing or at least not profiting off of Russia to supporting Ukraine. Um, what have you seen about how businesses are supporting partners in the region? And I don't just mean you know, sending charity money there, but, um, you know, working to support uh, partners, whether that's employees or contractors. Um, we know a lot of folks have offshore teams, you know, not necessarily in Ukraine, but definitely Poland is a huge hub um, or even suppliers. Anything that you've seen? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the first thing to, to keep in mind is to break down the difference between, you know, foreign employees working in Ukraine and Ukrainian employees uh, in Ukraine. Obviously, a lot of companies have done a lot of work already to get those foreign workers out of Ukraine. Um, and with regards to the Ukrainians themselves, they've done a lot of work to get at least the women, the female employees and their children out. Um, again, just, to, you know, all men between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country. They're being conscripted to try and fight against the Russians and defend Ukraine. But some of the companies I think are doing the best work are, are doing everything to get people out, to get them settled, um, provide them a lot of times at least two or three months salary in advance to help pay for food, for clothing, for medicine, you know, temporary housing and travel expenses. Um, and then kind of in the less short term, you know, figuring out how do we shut down these offices and facilities in Ukraine in a manner that perhaps we could open again later, or if we move employees from Ukraine to Poland or to Hungary or somewhere else, is there a way we can create secondary offices or remote offices so they can still keep a job, they can still keep working. Um, the big challenges, I think, facing a lot of the companies in Ukraine and the whole area, and, and for the United States as well, is be, uh, are, are more big cyber attacks coming from the Russians you know, will they target, you know, Western focused countries? Um, and will they also potentially impact critical infrastructure? Will they try to shut down electrical grids? Will they try to shut down pipelines like we had the colonial pipeline a few months ago? Um, so for those companies, you know, staying in the region and working in the region, you know, I think they anticipate much higher energy prices and supply chains are gonna be greatly disrupted for a long time. You know, there's basically little to no shipping anywhere now for Ukraine, the occupied or unoccupied parts uh, within uh, <clears throat> the Black Sea. Um, and, you know, how is that going to impact if you're a company working in the region? How is that going to impact your transportation costs with regards to energy? How is it going to impact your manufacturing costs if, if the price of gas increases by 50%? Absolutely. And, and you touched on supply chains there. And I think that is such a difficult thing to even begin thinking about right now, any, any clues or ideas that you've seen as far as where we're going to be with supply chains over the next couple of months, you know, as this unfolds? 
Yeah, I think supply chains um, are absolutely going to be impacted negatively for the next few weeks and months and perhaps longer. Um, but perhaps COVID was a bit of, of a wake-up call, you know, really for the world. Um, I think it's a lot of, you know, companies in the U.S. and elsewhere said, okay, I know it's cheap. I know it's efficient. I know they do good work, but is it excessive and kind of unrealistic to rely upon just one source, specifically just trying to produce, you know, key elements in our supply chain? Um, so that, I think, led some companies in the last two years to say, hey, we should nearshore more of this. We should do more production in Mexico and Central America. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of that wake-up call had already started, but I think this will just accelerate it. Um, and then, you know, like we're saying, the flip side is uh, outside of oil and gas, there's not much Russia can do to hurt most, say, American companies or other big companies. But if, if this goes on longer or the Chinese decide to, to, to get involved, you know, even economically, um, China has obviously much, much bigger economic weapons they could use. If they shut down exports from a key city in China because of uh, uh, COVID, you know, shut down entire cities, shut down plants, that was bad and that was intense during the COVID years. But if they decide later shut down access from American companies to certain key industries, what does that mean? So I think um, it's a big impact, especially for any companies that rely on Ukraine or Russia for materials or goods or services. Uh, One of the main things we heard about the last two years is computer chips, Mm -hmm. um, which especially with the ones that are important for key manufacturing, advanced manufacturing. Um, One of the things that probably, you know, a lot of people haven't heard about or may not realize is um, Ukraine, for the United States market, Ukraine produces about 90% of the semiconductor-grade neon that's used by U.S. companies to, produce, to make these precise lasers that are used to produce um, some of the best chips that we make. So that's 90% of that market we have there. Longer term, uh, in terms of other kind of advanced and growing technologies, Ukraine is believed to have one of the largest lithium reserves in the entire world, which is obviously key for, you know, advanced batteries, electric cars, and everything under the sun. Um, just to look back at the, the Russian side, um, you know, the 1990s seemed like a, a time of peace, a time of democracy spreading around the world, and also, ec- you know, economics developing and markets opening all around the world, which they did. Um, but maybe, perhaps maybe that's closer approximation, say, the 1920s. We have World War I, we thought it was the war to end all wars. Obviously, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, not long after that, we had a period of a rise of dangerous dictators and authoritarianism in, in Germany, in Italy, in Japan. Mm. So I think um, companies have to stay flexible and, and willing to kind of anticipate risks, anticipate what may or may not happen. And we may not be facing a new cold war, so to speak, but we're definitely going to be facing a more divided world. You know, is it going to be what come upon the lines of autocratic nations and state do- state dominated economies such as Russia and China versus democratic nations such as the United States and Europe and Japan and South Korea? Um, I don't know. You know, that's probably that's what it looks like it's going right now. Um, but of course, if that is what's going to happen, you talk about the real unthinkable. Um, if something along these lines of sanctions and economic tools are put in place or attempted to be put in place on China, it's completely 
catastrophic potentially to the world's economy. You know, uh, the premise that Russia is using to invade Ukraine is a similar premise that China has said about Taiwan for years. This is historically part of our our country. These are our people. This is our our part of our mainland. This is this is our culture. Um, that's what they say about Taiwan. That's what they say. The Russians say about Ukraine. You know, Chinese economy is roughly ten times the size of Russia. Um, for the United States perspective, in particular, uh, China is our number three um, trade partner after Canada and Mexico. Uh, Russia is has the similar volume of trade to the United States of Peru and the Philippines. To put it in perspective, it's far less than one percent of our total trade. So, um, you know, if that were to occur. It is very difficult for us and most of the world to divest itself from China. Mm. China is the number one trading partner of about 120 nations in the world. And you think they're only about 190 in the whole world in the first place. So it would be very, very difficult for the world to really disengage from China. That won't happen. It can't happen. So, um, you know, maybe just to end on a, <laughs> a slightly positive note. I was going to say, those are some very, <laughs> a series of sobering thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I would say, you know, perhaps uh, it's going to be dire economic times for a lot of people in Russia, but maybe it'll, it'll make them eventually kind of, uh, kind of look in the mirror and say, you know, what is the reality of Putin? What is the reality of the same person being in power for 22 years and potentially in power for another 10 years from now? I don't know what's going to happen in the next few months or a few years, but maybe there's a change in, in leadership and leadership style that's coming. And then lastly, for Ukraine, it's going through incredibly difficult times now. Um, absolute destruction, as everyone's seen, uh, of civilian targets, of infrastructure. Obviously, most of its businesses are incredibly disrupted. But if and when Ukraine get to a point where it can stand on its uh, own two feet again, I think it'll be taken in much more readily by the European Union and supported uh, by the European Union and by the United States and our allies. And, and hopefully we'll be able to rebuild and restart that country and get it off to a, uh, a much stronger place than it was before. Absolutely. I really like that. Thank you for, for ending on a high note there. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Ronan. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Mercy, and I uh, uh, hope to catch up with you again. So for those in the U.S., definitely check out worldaffairscouncils.org to see upcoming programming on the Ukrainian situation and much more. The World Affairs Councils are independent, nonpartisan organizations where you can take a more active and engaged role in learning about global affairs. And once again, I'm Mercy Harper. Thanks for joining us for this APQC podcast. Please go to apqc.org to learn more about our research, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.